Today we will conclude the Boundaries of Reconciliation series. We want to be extremely practical today. In a certain way, the previous three teachings have laid the theological groundwork for today's teaching. Today is definitely a how-do-we-then-live sort of day. And so we will begin with an exercise. Does everyone jump up? No, no, no. Not that type of exercise. Okay. Here's our exercise. Are you ready for this? We're going to have some conversations and ask each other questions about our faith traditions and what we believe and how we live them out. So, I've already asked the Catholics among us, thank God for the Catholics among us, are you, I've asked them, are you willing to have some Protestants ask you some questions? And they said, yes. Thank you, Catholics. I also ask our Messianic Jewish couple, yay, sit and dead. Are you willing to have people ask you about Messianic Judaism? And they said, yes, thank you, sit and dead. I have not asked the Protestants if they're willing to field questions, because they're Protestants, so of course they are. So here's what we're going to do. Are you ready? Listen carefully, because I'm going to break you up, and then give you some time to talk, and then call you back. Find your seat. All right, good job, everyone. I know that was way too short. We could have spent the whole morning just interacting, right? All right. I'm going to ask you some questions. We're going to debrief. We're going to debrief a little bit. Who thought it was helpful to talk about these topics? Just raise your hand. Okay. Who found it exhilarating? Besides Micah. <laughs> a few people. Exhilarating. Good. All right. Next question. Who found these conversations uncomfortable? I'm just curious. Did anybody feel like I don't know if I want to go there. I don't know if we have enough time. Right. Okay. Not enough time. Yeah. question. Okay. Very good. Did anyone get angry or start arguing? Raise your hand. If that happened, you did. No. All right. I want you to realize how unusual it is for us to be able to do this exercise. Most Christians around the world never even meet fellow believers from another stream or tradition. Or if they do, then the interactions fall in two camps. One is kind of politely distant. Oh, that's nice. Or intense argument. Okay. So, well done, Christ the Reconciler. God has given us grace for our ministry of reconciliation. Now, let me ask you a question. What if we did the same exercise, but I asked you to split up by political leanings? <laughs> right, left, center. And what if the questions were about topics like Trump, the 2020 election, racism, immigration, the wage gap, climate change, abortion. What if? Would you be more nervous about that exercise? Anybody with a little bit of tightness in the pit of their stomach? I'm not going to have you do it, so don't worry. Yeah, let's go there. Now let's think about this a minute. Why, when discussing matters of faith, which have eternal significance, can we share, listen, laugh, and open up to each other? But when discussing matters of politics, which of course have eternal significance in certain ways, but in other ways you can say these are relatively ephemeral, we are close to each other and unwilling to have the conversation. Think about it. I imagine that some of you convinced you're, are convinced that you're right on these topics. And you aren't at all interested in what other people have to say. 
I think that probably some would be hesitant to say what you really believe for fear of being judged and rejected. No one said, no one said that for this ex- the faith exercise that we did. But I think it would be true for the political or the cultural. Okay, so why is this? Part of the answer is God has graced us with the ministry of reconciliation in the specific area of the historic traditions and churches. This is our calling. Amy and I are Catholic and Protestant, not black and white or liberal and conservative. So we live out what we're called to and graced for, and this is right and good. But I think we also need to be aware of the times that we are in. At least in the U.S., the church right now is splitting not so much along denominational lines, but along cultural and political lines. Does Jesus' prayer for unity among his followers apply only to denominations? When it comes to socialist versus libertarian, is Jesus silent? Powerless? Prayerless? Or maybe you believe Jesus is actually wielding a sword of division, cutting off one side or the other from the body of Christ. If so, which side? Let's remember that historically many denominations have seen Jesus as cutting off everyone else, which may, from their perspective, include you and me. We are courageously contending for a different response in the denominational area. Let's do the same in the cultural arena. So we have room to grow in our community, and it is important for the watching world that we not only live out John 17 across denominational fault lines, but across cultural fault lines as well. I have been asked specifically by our friend, by many friends from Europe about this. They have their eye on the situation here in the U.S., and it affects them. This was the original purpose of starting this Boundaries of Reconciliation series. To help us grow in living out John 17 in the cultural as well as the denominational arena. You may not have been aware that this was the purpose of the series, but now you know. <laughs> so, let's do a brief recap of what we've learned in the series so far. And for those listening later, online, via YouTube or recording, if you haven't listened or watched those three previous teachings, press pause go watch them and come back because they are absolutely crucial for the context of what's going to be said today. All right. Boundaries of reconciliation number one, true and false unity. Remember this one? All right. Let's walk through it very quickly. Jesus' boundary that he draws in John 17 has to do with faith and rootedness. His followers have faith in him and rootedness in the message of the disciples. Those who do not yet follow Jesus don't have faith and or rootedness. Okay? True unity happens inside this boundary. This is the unity Jesus prayed for. I pray for all who will believe in me through their word that they would be one. A false unity is trying to have unity across this boundary. Okay? It doesn't mean there's not love. It doesn't mean there's not lots of other things. But unity, that's a false unity. Okay, can I expel them? That's the easy solution, right? The person I don't like who calls themselves a follower of Jesus, if I don't want to have unity with them, I'll kick them out, and then I can have unity with my little group. We came up with these three rules, diving into the scriptures. Before you expel someone, number one, have you been given authority, spiritual authority, to cast this person or group out of the body of Christ, to label them as not a Christian? Number one, that weeds out 99.9% of us. But for the 0.1% left, am I willing to risk committing the unforgivable sin by asserting that there's no evidence of the presence or work of the Holy Spirit in their lives? That's a high bar. Okay, let's say we make it through that one. Last one, am I assured that labeling them not real Christians Will, make, will not make it more difficult for others to turn to God. <clears throat> so, the scriptural background behind all this is in that <coughs> teaching. Go listen to it. 
Baptism of Reconciliation number two, apostolic authority, submission to God, which was Amy's teaching. But we talked about the fact that the body of Christ, in that boundary that Jesus made, there are other boundaries, right? And of course, it's important to remember, this is not the scale. So these boundaries, these boundaries are rightly set by the apostolic leaders of those groups. Okay? They set the boundaries of what this group is going after, maybe certain core beliefs that they have, that sort of thing. And that's good and right and should be respected. That's what we were just actually talking about in these groups. The apostolic boundaries set by various leaders of different groups and how we understand those. Okay? So now CTR is one of those groups. And so the uh, spiritual leaders of CTR, ourselves, me and Amy and the Owenses, have uh, set the boundaries, apostolic boundaries, around CTR. One set of those is the statement of personal devotion. Okay? That's an apostolic boundary that says, here's who we are. Other people may not subscribe to this that are still in the body of Christ, and that's okay. Right? Satan rejoices in picking off believers, and the ones who are not submitted to apostolic authority are easy prey. And there is no plan B, Amy said several times. No. Jesus is committed to working through the church. Yeah, amen. The evidence of our love will be mutual submission, just as it is between the persons of the Trinity. That was number two. Number three, prophetic responsibility, submission, and freedom. He said, okay, I hear what you're saying, but I'm one of those Old Testament prophets that's submitted to nobody and can just say what I want to whenever I want to. Well, we said, no, that doesn't apply. And there's reasons, go listen to the teaching when it's up. But prophets do have a responsibility and an important role in the, the, these groups to speak what they hear God saying, pointing always to Jesus for the purpose of building up the body with the goal of complete unity. That all comes from Ephesians 4. Okay? And then we looked at Verena's lovely picture where the healthy, happy church is built on a balanced foundation of the apostles and prophets working together in mutual submission. When either one of them becomes overly important and the other becomes underimportant, the church becomes unbalanced and, and damaged. Okay? CTR and the prophetic. There's mutual submission this way we just described in our leadership team. And then there's individual submission to our respective churches. That's the first part of the, the statement of personal devotion. I'm an active member of a local church. So we're submitted to the leaders of those local churches. Okay, that's the recap to lay the groundwork. Boundaries of reconciliation. What's left? What's left is, we haven't talked about within these boundaries, how do we relate to one another? That hasn't been a topic yet. Particularly, we're focusing today on within CTR, how do we relate to one another? What kind of conversations do we have around the dinner table? All right? I just love sitting down and eating with you guys because the conversations are always very amazing. It's just a gift we have from the Lord in our community. Let's take it up a notch. All right? Okay, for one thing, one way we could go, but we're not going to go, but I'll touch on it briefly. The New Testament spends a lot of time instructing the members of the newly forming churches how to relate to one another. We could spend this whole teaching, or in fact a whole series, covering that material. But we won't. It's already well covered, hopefully, in your churches, and we can talk about it another time. That's not our purpose today. But I do have two simple examples from Paul just to whet your appetite for the kinds of things that are in the New Testament. Number one, some of you say, I have the right to do anything. U.S., Texas, the South America. But you know that not everything is helpful to others. Some say, I have the right to do anything. But not everything builds others up. For no one should seek their own good but the good of others. They're just one. Another one. I love this one because Paul's kind of snarky in it. 
For I'm afraid that when I come to Corinth again, I will not find you as I desire you to be, and you will not find me as you desire me to be. <laughs> I fear, get this list, that there will be quarreling, jealousy, anger, selfish ambition, slander, gossip, arrogance, and disorder among you. Is that relevant? Okay. But rather than focus on these types of New Testament passages that are well-known, if not always well-practiced, I would like to turn to my favorite obscure passage from the Old Testament. And I would like to propose that our conversations here at Christ the Reconciler should be Malachi 3.16 conversations. What? Who has Malachi 3.16 memorized? <laughs> what does that mean? I think the idea of Malachi 3.16 conversations could be really helpful to us if it becomes part of our community culture. Why? Because this single verse encapsulates some amazing realities that can be easily remembered, and you can memorize the whole verse. So let's read it. Together. Then those who fear the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord listened and heard them. So a book of remembrance was written before them for those who fear the Lord and who meditate on his name. Isn't that an amazing verse? <clears throat> Any quick thoughts, just things that jumped out at you? Probably many of you have never really paid attention to this verse. Anything that jumps out, just real fast. It's always struck me the scroll of remembrance to, to memorialize and not just let it go, you know, do something tangible to help remember as well. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the Lord actually listening and paying attention to it, it being important enough for him to pay attention to. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Good. I was just going to uh, say, you know, just fear in a sense of mm. respect and mm -hmm. reverence for God. Good. Yeah. Deb, do you have something? I was just going to say, we're two or more gathered. Love it. Yeah, I was thinking it spoke to one another. Yeah. That was really interesting. Well, I don't, need to, I don't need to give the teaching now. <laughs> but has that ever stopped me? Yeah. <laughs> so what we're going to do is go through this phrase by phrase and kind of unpack this, okay? So first, those who feared the Lord. I love the way this starts. The focus is on God. Malachi could have started. Then those who cared passionately about their issues <laughs> spoke to one another. Or then those who knew deep down they were right spoke to one another. <laughs> but he didn't. Not only is the focus on God right from the start, but it's clear that there's a relationship with God involved. All of Israel are God's people but it doesn't say, then the children of Israel spoke to each other. It says, those who feared the Lord. So every person covered by this verse is in an intimate relationship with God who is real. And Malachi characterizes that relationship as the fear of the Lord. This is a vastly neglected topic in the church in these days. Let's spend a little bit of time trying to grasp this important concept. I'm going to tell a story. Some of you know the story. In a recent prayer meeting that I was in about a month ago, during worship, the Holy Spirit took me back to a vivid memory from October of last year of an experience I've already shared with many of you. It happened on the last day I was in England. I was taking a photography walk before meeting with Richard Harvey. There's Richard a Messianic Jewish leader we were going to meet for dinner at an English pub. How cool is that? <laughs> the sun was setting. It was a beautiful evening. I was headed for a church I had seen, and to get there I had to cross a set of railroad tracks. I saw a sign that amused me. Many of you know I collect what I consider to be amusing signs. This sign amused me, so I took a picture of it. <clears throat> Beware of trains. <laughs> I thought I could add it to my Master of the Obvious collection. <laughs> then I crossed the tracks, but my eye was caught by the beauty of the tracks disappearing into the misty fog. 
I took a picture. As I took the picture, I saw the light change from red to green. I realized a train was coming. I was gonna say. Cool, I thought. <laughs> I'd been taking videos of trains all through the trip at different places. And I thought this would be a nice last one, the train coming around and disappearing into the mist. I, I looked and saw the train actually rounding the bend on the set of tracks. Uh, so I walked across and walked across the next set of tracks, positioned myself to be safe, and I faced away from the train and just waited for it to come and go through the camera lens. I had misjudged the tracks. The train was right next to me. Yes. If I had stopped a few feet earlier, I would have been instantly killed. The proximity of that powerful train sent my body into profound shock. You can see it on the video, I just froze. I was unable to move. I just, I have that coming back now and hearing that. I had to travel home the next day, and it was even difficult to climb on an escalator in the airport. Oh my gosh. I was traumatized for several days after arriving back in Texas. Even now, as I tell you this story and watch the video, my adrenaline is racing. Okay, I want to tell you the story because as I was reliving this memory during that worship time a month ago, God spoke clearly to me. I am more powerful than that train. Well, talk about master of the obvious, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> but I immediately understood. I viscerally fear that train. I know my complete helplessness next to its power. And yet, that train is nothing compared to God Almighty. Thank you, Jim, for leading us in singing about God Almighty. This morning. Do I fear him? Do I feel my utter incapacity compared to his? Then those who feared the Lord. Let us cultivate our fear of the Lord. Not the kind of fear that perfect love casts out, a debilitating, irrational, demonic fear, a rightly held awe. An understanding that God is far more purposeful than that train, far more powerful, his purposes will be accomplished, and he cannot be stopped. So when we sit and talk with each other at Christ the Reconciler, our conversations are held in this context, recognizing that we individually and corporately are under God's sovereignty, power, and righteousness. None of us is God. Let me say that again. That's in George Miley's prayer to start the day. Mm -hmm. I am not, thank you God, that I am not God. None of us is God, wholly right in all we say and do. This should help us avoid pride and self-elevation, which have no place in our relationships. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Spoke to one another. Ah, now we have a conversation. Two or more people talking to one another. This is actually important, verbal conversation. It is quite countercultural in these times when so much of our communication is in the form of email, text messaging, WhatsApp, social media comments back and forth. Now I use all of these methods myself and they have their place. But their vulnerability has been seen with the recent release of ChatGPT. Soon it will be impossible to tell if the person you're corresponding with on the internet is actually an AI bot or a real person. You may think you're winning a convert with your arguments, when actually the powers that be are just sucking in more information for their algorithms, and everything you say can and possibly will be held against you. So, the value of actual conversation, face-to-face -face interactions, is about to rise again in society, I believe this. It has been diminishing. 
Now, this may take the form of trading voice messages instead of text messages or short videos. Gen Z is way ahead of us in this, by the way. Those are harder to fake, though not impossible. But the best is to actually sit down and talk. And we do this at CTR all the time. Retreats are filled with conversation. We purposefully make lots of time for these. Friday night worship that's starting up will provide another opportunity to gather and interact. Community members regularly come out here to visit, and we talk and pray together. They also get together in different places around town. This is all really good and healthy. Sometimes when you're sitting and talking, the intensity of the conversation, this can also happen in text conversations, or the strength with which someone offers an opinion can cause offense. Or someone simply insults you. In those cases, we will follow the way of direct address. We actually double down on the face-to-face. Because according to Matthew 18, if I am offended, what am I to do? I go privately to the person who offended me and talk to them about it. I tell them graciously of my offense, seeking mutual understanding and reconciliation. I do not speak about it behind their back. You wouldn't believe what so-and-so said to me. Right on. I do not accuse them in public. I only involve another mutually trusted person if resolution cannot be reached in private. Well, what if it's not me who's offended? According to Matthew 5, if I suspect it is my brother or sister who is offended at me, I do exactly the same thing. I go to them privately and reconcile. Jesus wants us to become the kinds of people who aren't afraid of face-to-face direct address in our community. There is wisdom, of course, in how to do this. We don't have time to revisit that teaching, but we'll talk more about it in days to come. But we cannot let the fear of offense or of addressing offense keep us from speaking to one another about the issues we all care about. Where two or three are gathered in his name, he has promised to come be in, with, and between us in a special way. The culmination of all of history is God and man at table are sat down. Let's practice this more and more ahead of time in our community. The Lord listened and heard them. Thank you, whoever pointed that out earlier. Wow, I mean, let that sink in a minute. Now, we're probably more familiar with 2 Chronicles 16.9. The eyes of the Lord roam to and fro across the earth, seeking those whose hearts are wholly his, that he may strengthen them. That's a powerful and beautiful verse. Apparently, the ears of the Lord also roam the earth. But instead of seeking individuals... They're seeking conversations. On the one hand, what an honor to be listened to by God. On the other hand, how fearful to be listened to by God. No conversation is private. The courts of heaven are our witnesses as we speak with one another. What are the implications of this? especially considering that we are those who fear the Lord. We should not say anything we don't want the Lord to hear. Contempt and anger are right out. Lying is ridiculous. Our community commitment, which will be released in the next retreat, will have us all renounce hiding our sins. God is light, in Him there is no darkness at all. Our conversations are held in the light of his listening. I have a saying that just has been in my heart and mind the last 10 years or so. There is no private. There is no private. This should, on the one hand, be very sobering to us. But on the other hand, we should rejoice. We can have confidence that God has given us freedom to talk about important issues. He is listening. Let's never cease to wonder that God pays attention to what we say. Mm -hmm. He wants to hear us express our different opinions, 
change our minds, disagree with one another, and learn from each other. Apparently, he enjoys this. It's okay to argue a little. After all, Malachi 3.16 was written to the Jews. <laughs> and their conversations can be quite intense. I've learned from our Jewish friends that strong disagreement can be stated respectfully and even in good humor. We can also learn from God how to conduct our conversations. In the Hebrew, listen is a different word than hear. The word translated listen means to hearken, to pay attention, to be on the edge of your seat. In the wonderful children's book, this is one of my favorites, Because of Winn-Dixie, which several of our children have recently read, author Kate DeMillo, DeCamillo writes of when the main character, an 11-year-old girl named Opal, accidentally encounters, this is Winn-Dixie, by the way, the dog, for those of you who don't know, accidentally encounters Gloria Duck, a blind, recovering alcoholic whom the town children all think is a witch. Opal's dog, Winn-Dixie, snuck into Gloria's yard and devoured Gloria's peanut butter sandwich. And so Opal, kind of in a trembling way, goes in after her dog and encounters Gloria. But Gloria asks Opal if she wants another peanut butter sandwich. She's going to make one for herself because the dog ate one. Do you want one too? And now I'll, I'll pick up with the book. I sat down careful, and Gloria Dump made me a peanut butter sandwich on white bread. Then she made one for herself and put her false teeth in to eat it. And when she was done, she said to me, You know, my eyes ain't too good at all. I can't see nothing but the general shape of things, so I got to rely on my heart. Why don't you go on and tell me everything about yourself so I can see you with my heart? And because when Dixie was looking up at her like she was the best thing he had ever seen, and because the peanut butter sandwich was so good, and because I had been waiting for a long time to tell some person everything about me, I did. There's a lot to learn from this beautiful passage. Maybe the person you've been told is a witch. Democrat, that Republican, is hungry for real conversation. Maybe we don't see as well as we think we do. I love the passage in Isaiah. Who is blind like the servant of the Lord? Maybe the best way to start a conversation is not by proclaiming your point of view, but with a question. Tell me everything about yourself. Maybe we can learn to see each other with our hearts. That's how the Lord does it. So, a book of remembrance, a scroll of remembrance, was written before him. Can there be any greater honor accorded us than the Lord listens and hears, and that he sees us with his heart? Actually, yes. God writes down our words. First of all, writing down what someone says is another way to listen. So God's listening three ways, actually. Listening, hearing, and writing. How many of you journal? Do you record in your journal what you hear others say in conversations? If so, you're listening like God listens. Well done. The Hebrew word for remembrance is memorial. For example, when the Israelites finally crossed the Jordan into the Promised Land, they built a memorial, a remembrance out of stones, so that every time they come across it, they recall what God did. This book of remembrance in Malachi 3.16 is the only memorial in the Old Testament that's created by God, not by people. 
What does he do with that book? Does he reread it? Do the hosts of heaven go back through it so as to recall our conversations with each other? Once again, just like having the Lord listen, having our conversations eternally recorded is crazy amazing and also crazy scary. (laughs) One day the just judge will open the books of the court of heaven and our own words will testify either for us or against us. In her pivotal teaching on the accuser of the brethren, Caroline reminded us of what Jesus said. But I tell you that everyone will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. So let's have our conversations here at CTR be the acquitting kind of conversations. Again, James, with the tongue we praise our Lord and Father and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. I love, Jenny, that you brought up Isaiah 6 in worship. I live, I'm a man of unclean lips, I live among a people of unclean lips. I mean, there it is, right? Lord, send an angel with a burning coal touch the lips of our community and our nation and the church. Alright, so Book of Remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord. Wait, haven't you already covered this? Well, Malachi doubles down on fearing the Lord, so I will too. A healthy fear of the Lord should be corrective for other unhealthy tendencies we have, such as an insistence on being right. Are you willing to not be right? Or do you think, I've done my homework, and I know I've got truth on this issue. Let's hear what John Dawson leader of YWAM and one of my heroes. Notice I'm there. This is the first time I met John in Prague. Let's hear what he might have to say to us about this. The wounds of the world. When we study human conflict, we see that Satan's method of getting one group to abuse another is rooted in the hard-headed collision of self-righteous people within each group. Take some truth polarize the people with different sides of that truth, tempt them to unrighteous judgment, then watch them wound each other with rejection, harsh words, and injustice. The cycle seems endless, since even two individuals can hurt each other through selfish and unjust behavior. It is equally common for wounds to be sustained by a nation or people within a nation. Animosities and bitterness can fester unresolved for generations. Much of what is put forward these days as truth is actually knowledge. A person has done research on the internet and presents their findings as the truth. Another person counters with their own true research. And it appears that the truth is contradictory or unreachable. But what each is actually bringing to the other is in fact not truth but knowledge which may be correct or incorrect, or likely a mix. The truth is more full-orbed. Now, this doesn't mean that truth is relative. We must not stray into the common error in our culture that says that every opinion is correct. You have your truth, I have mine. How can we navigate between these two positions, or between these two dangers? By holding closely to an understanding that ultimately, truth is a person. John 14, 6. I am the truth. Pursuing truth means pursuing Jesus. I don't have my Jesus, and you have your Jesus. There's only one Jesus, and he's real. 
that he is not simple or one-dimensional. No person is, but especially not the Son of God. He is the most complex person that has ever or will ever live. This means that you can never possess the truth or fully comprehend him. The search for truth takes us ever deeper into the realms of revelation. Now, with that, don't hear me wrong again. I'm not saying that you shouldn't try to gain knowledge or do research or your homework. Please do that. But as you do, you must keep ever in your mind Paul's strong warning. Knowledge puffs up, but love built up. The man who thinks he knows something does not yet know as he ought to know. The man who loves God is known by God. Guard against puffing. And always remember that later in the same book, Paul goes on to say something crazy, that a person could possess all knowledge. Okay. You're right in everything. You've got it all. You know exactly the right thing about every single issue, historical fact. Guess what? If you don't have love, you are nothing. That is an amazing statement. Think of how much time and energy we spend attaining knowledge. Paul says, you can have it all, and it could be worth nothing. My opinion is this scripture should be engraved on the door of every seminary. <laughs> now this is even true of scriptural knowledge. Jesus says, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, I am the truth, and yet you refuse to come to me to have life. So you can know the Bible and yet not know the truth. And get this, if the Lord is the truth, then fear of the Lord is also fear of the truth. Now, by fear of the truth, I don't mean this. Okay, somebody, in your best mean voice, give it to me. You can handle the truth. Thank you, Martin. This is not what I mean. Okay? I mean having a healthy awe of the grandeur, the glory, and the multifaceted nature of God who is the truth. With this attitude, suddenly we're standing all side by side, pressing on together to know the truth. We may disagree, or more likely not understand each other, but we are not against each other. As we become the kind of people who fear the Lord, we cannot be simultaneously the kind of people who then show contempt to each other in our conversations. All right. Last clause. To meditate on his name. This is new. For the first part, didn't mention this, but now Malachi adds it. And I love it. Not only are we the kind of people who fear the Lord, we are the kind of people who meditate on his name. I like the translation meditate, but I'm not sure that's the main meaning of this word in Hebrew, as I, I don't know Hebrew as well as some people in the room and on Zoom, but my understanding is it's not the primary meaning. The primary meanings listed are to account for or to honor or esteem the name of the Lord. Every conversation on the issues of the day should account for the eternal name of God. What is this name? Fortunately, we are told exactly what it is. Exodus 34. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for the thousandth generation, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, yet by no means clearing the guilty 
but visiting the iniquity of the parents upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. This name should be honored in the way we speak to one another. Each of us should have deep within our souls the nature of the God we serve. And we should strongly desire to become the kind of people who reflect that nature more and more. Now, how do we do this? I'm going to take one aspect of this name as an example, okay? Just one. Let's talk about anger. The right is angry. The left is angry. Each side in our culture feels increasing permission to vent that anger publicly. Anger fills our public discourse. God also gets angry. In fact, did you catch it? It's part of his name. What is his anger like? Is it like our anger? No. First of all, God's anger is entirely justified. He is the only person whose anger is entirely justified. His anger is never misguided. It is never self-serving. God is not addicted to anger. His anger is always right and always righteous. Ah, righteous anger. Well, you may say, that's what my anger is like. It's righteous anger. They are racist. I should be angry. Or... They are killing babies. I should be angry. Is your anger righteous? The name of God is slow to anger. So God's anger is not described in terms of what he's angry about, but in terms of how long it takes to get him there. Are you slow to anger? Am I? Or are we quick to anger? Now, I'm going to ask a question. How slow to anger is God? Does anyone know? Give me a number. I'm going to give you a number. You ready? God strongly prefers anger to wrath. Sorry, prefers mercy to anger, wrath, and judgment. And... God likes math. <laughs> so, for those of you who hate math, I apologize. But there is math in God's name. Keeping love, steadfast love, to the thousandth generation, but visiting the iniquity to the third or fourth. You can see that the ratio of mercy to anger is a thousand to three or four. So we'll split the difference and say 3.5. <laughs> and there you go. God is angry 0.35% of the time. <laughs> what does this mean? It means he has a flash of anger about once a year. Once again, what is our anger like? Now, interestingly, keeping on the math theme, that ratio corresponds really well to another math ratio we can find in God's Word. Isaiah 61, we all know this. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom to the captives, Release from darkness for the prisoners to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. This may be the first time this famous passage has been used for a math lesson. So Exodus 34, 0.35, 61, 0.27. So, 0.3%. That's a good one. Get angry approximately 0.3% of the time, and you've got righteous anger. <laughs> well, he didn't do the greatest like a thousand years, so we really got it off easy. <laughs> so to honor this one aspect of the name of God, remember the whole point of this is just to meditate a little bit on the name of God. 
to honor this one aspect of the name of God, and there are many others to spend time meditating on, should we not speak thousands of gracious and merciful words to one another before daring to consider a few words of anger? Righteous anger is not being continually angry about an issue that we think we are right on. Certainly, one important aspect of righteous anger is to not be angry about something that is wrong. We may have some areas of growth there as well. But the aspect of righteous anger that is embedded in the name of God is being slow to anger. Very, very slow to anger. And once that anger comes, it flashes quickly, does its work, and is gone. This is the kind of anger that is clearly taught in the New Testament. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Now remember, this is all in the context of Malachi 3.16, that God is listening, hearing, and recording conversations between those who honor his name. All right, we'll finish by talking about one other way to honor or meditate on God's name. It's very, very, this is a way that's very special to us and absolutely core for Christ the Reconciler. And that is contemplating the Trinity. Contemplating the Trinity is the topic of the next teaching series. After all, what is unity? If we're working for unity, we need to know what it is. Unity is the unity of the Trinity. So contemplating the unity of the Trinity is absolutely core to living out our calling. And it should be the foundation of the conversations one with another. So let me slightly rephrase or refocus the end uh, of Malachi 3.16 and some other parts of it. And we'll close by reading this aloud together. So let's stand and make together a prophetic declaration. Ready? Then, we who fear the Lord and Christ the Reconciler will speak to one another in months and years to come. And the Lord will listen and hear us. So a book of remembrance will be written before him. For, for us and our community who fear the Lord and who meditate on his name and contemplate the unity of the Trinity. Amen. 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 All right. Have a seat, and I can now reveal the name of the teaching. Malachi 3.16 Conversations. I encourage you to memorize Malachi 3.16. Let it be written on your heart. Okay?